0: Welcome to The Well-Nurtured Brain, where we delve into the exciting world of brain health. Every episode, we bring the latest research and expert insights on mental and neurological health, and offer practical tips and strategies on how to nurture your brain and optimize its function. From mental wellness to neurological health, we'll cover it all so you can become skilled in the care and feeding of the most important organ in your body, the one that makes you you, your brain. Welcome to episode 18 of the Well-Nurtured Brain. I'm your host, Dr. Pamela Hutchison, naturopathic doctor with over 20 years of clinical practice supporting folks with mental health and neurological challenges live healthy lives. And today we are on part two of our series on migraine. This is when we're getting more into the juicy therapeutics. We're going to focus on what you can do. So if you have migraine, what you could be doing in terms of lifestyle modifications. We're going to talk about things like supplementation that has some data to support it, diet, exercise, and as well as some really encouraging evidence that's out there on the use of acupuncture as a standard intervention for the prevention of migraine. You know, I'm always excited to work with people with migraine because often we do get some traction when we start using lifestyle medicine interventions especially in terms of frequency. So we often are just trying to prevent or reduce the frequency and then when that person is getting their events they're still using their medications whether it's an NSAID or a triptan or so forth. But being able to prevent that migraine is the biggest win of course because then you don't need those medications and you don't even go through all of the additional consequences of either taking that medication or even if you've taken the medication, you might still get the the quote unquote migraine hangover. So I'm excited because if I can reduce the frequency of episodes for that patient, they're going to feel a lot better and they're going to be able to contribute more to the world and be of greater service to their families and their coworkers and so forth. Before we jump in, though, I wanted to do a quick review of a couple things just so that this is on your mind as, as you listen to the rest of this episode. What is a migraine? We talked about this. A migraine is more than just a headache. Migraine is a phenomena that occurs in, in four phases, although you do not have to have aura and, and you do not have to have a headache in order to actually have a migraine attack or be diagnosed with migraine. But it usually comes in these four phases of the predrome, the aura, which is the often visual phenomena that people will have, but it can be many other things, the headache itself, and then the post-drome. And it's not unusual for people to have some of those stages take minutes to hours and others of those stages could could take days. And so it's not unusual for someone to have a migraine where they're managing the problem for up to a week or even longer. That highlights again why prevention is so important because prevention could give back somebody possibly a week of their lives. That's pretty good. And then I also wanted to remind people that there are multiple pathophysiological changes that we are trying to amend when we provide therapeutics, whether it's in the moment treating the pain or whether it's preventing the phenomena altogether. This isn't just one problem. It is a collusion of factors Things like cortical spreading depression, the activation of the trigeminal vascular system and the release of neuropeptides that cause neural inflammation, as well as sensitization, central sensitization, and increased pain interpretation by the brain. So this is a multifactorial or pronged challenge to address, and it's not a simple intervention, which is why there's not a simple response that we have that works for every person with migraine. If you want to take this on as a project and try to see if you can reduce your frequency, one of the most important things before you do any intervention would be to track. Because you really want to know what is the frequency and duration of my migraine attacks in order to understand if the an intervention you do is actually making a difference in, in the frequency of that event. There's apps out there. There's ways that you can track. It is also really reasonable to just keep this to a calendar and that you track the start and end of a migraine attack so that you get a sense of the frequency and then later you can simply track that against interventions so maybe you decide to change your diet you then track what is happening after you've changed your diet and do that for a few months to see if you're getting reduction in the frequency of your migraine that's really rewarding for folks to do and i think even in saying all of this i think that the best way to do this is to have a professional walking with you because they can help you with so many things, including troubleshooting all of the things that can happen with diet or exercise or supplementation, but also that they help with accountability. Whenever we're trying to make big changes in in our lifestyle, accountability really matters. It helps people keep going when it gets hard to keep going because we have lives, right? We have big lives and changing our diet, which sounds really easy at the very beginning, actually involves the changing of our shopping patterns, our cooking patterns, possibly our snacking patterns. And all of that is not as easy as it sounds when you first say, "Let's just change your diet. let's let's get rid of sugar, for instance." It's harder. So natural interventions, possibly some of the reasons why they're helpful in migraine, is that they might be helping us tackle a few different things. I talk about with people with Alzheimer's dementia, people with Parkinson's that. There's a metabolic aspect to those diseases, and some of the most potential ways to change your metabolism is to exercise and eat differently. And we know in migraine that there's some challenges with the production of ATP in people's brains. That's a metabolic challenge. And again, we're seeing that exercise and diet probably making a difference in people with migraine and the frequency of their attacks. So let's start with diet. It's a reasonable place to start. I would say that this is where, where we probably have some of the weakest data to support things and in many ways disappointing. However, there is some, I think, hopeful and elevating information that has come out of the research looking at migraine and diet. We need a lot more research on this, and you'll see as I get into this what I mean. So with diet and migraine, a couple phenomena kept coming up. When I was looking at various review studies and meta-analysis. So one of the things is that people who eat a healthier diet just seem to have lower headache burden. But what that healthier diet is isn't really well described. I think we could probably presume that it's lower in saturated fats, it's probably higher in fiber, it's probably lower in simple carbohydrates and sugars, it's probably lower in ultra-processed foods. There is no correlation that, that's been found, and they've been look, looked at this a few times now, between gluten-free eating and reduction of migraine frequency. And I think that there was a time where that was getting lauded as a, as a reasonable and possibly therapeutic intervention, but they actually haven't found that getting rid of gluten actually makes a difference for migraine frequency, with one notable exception, which is that if you have celiac disease, it does. Works great if you have celiac disease. And a little caution here is that people with migraine are at a slightly higher risk of celiac disease. So if there's any hints in terms of digestive health that there might be something going on there, certainly would be reasonable to at least get that checked out. Another thing that came up was that the use of an elimination diet does not appear to be beneficial for reducing migraine frequency. It's a little different than saying that there, there's no foods that trigger migraine. I don't think that we can say that with confidence. There are people out there who are getting triggered. But what they're really saying is that putting everyone on elimination diet is not a evidence-based approach to trying to reduce frequency. And maybe, again, tracking and possibly tracking against diet might be a better way to try to suss those things out. As I mentioned in the previous part one of of this two-part series, some of the reasons why we really went down a rabbit hole around specific foods being triggers of migraines was in part because there is in the the prodrome, there is this tendency to either have an increase in appetite or a craving for specific foods. And so that person might be eating chocolate in advance of their uh, migraine headache phase but the chocolate itself isn't triggering it. It's actually the part of the whole migraine attack is actually a craving for chocolate. That's a common one. There's some specific diets that have been researched like the ketogenic diet, the low glycemic index diet, and the DASH diet that do have some modest evidence to support them in the prevention of migraine. So the ketogenic diet and the low glycemic diet both amount to causing a much more stable metabolic state in the brain because the provision of of nutrients for energy become more stable in both of those those diets. And there's some thinking out there that another problem for folks with migraine is essentially that there is some issues with brain glucose metabolism going on for some people with migraine. In, In essence, they may have some difficulty with managing fluctuating blood sugar. They may have problems with insulin sensitivity in their brain. And so doing dietary interventions that provide either more stable blood sugar levels and avoid spikes that would further an insulin resistance pattern that might be happening in that person's brain or providing them with ketones, which is an alternative fuel for brain cells. So that's the ketogenic diet, that those two things might create more stability for the energy production side of things in the brain. I want to talk a little bit about the ketogenic diet first. There is, so there is this mode of action that may make sense, and there's some research that show that it might be helpful. But one of the things that I find really problematic about the ketogenic diet is the fact that it has a lot of side effects. So we often don't think of diet as something that comes with problems. We think of healthy diets as only coming with benefits. But diet actually has lots of side effects when we change someone's diet. If we give people a huge increase in their fiber, they can get really bloated. Whenever we change diet, we get side effects. Unfortunately, with ketogenic diets, some of the risks are, are problematic. For instance, the ketogenic diet, in its purest form at least, is associated with an increased risk of kidney stones, an increased risk of constipation, nutritional deficiencies, and even heart disease. That's not the only ones. I just picked out a few. So when we're thinking about something, dietary intervention... That we are going to put into someone's life that is going to be there for a long period of time to reduce the frequency of a significant neurological event that can happen to them on the regular, like a migraine attack. We want to think about things that can be tolerated long term without creating new problems for those patients. So, when people get really excited about ketogenic diets, and I'm always cautious because I know if people get into that process and find it beneficial it's harder for them to stop. And at some point, we do want them to actually revert to a non-ketogenic diet in order to stay healthy over time. There's a couple studies that I looked at, and one study I found that I thought was interesting looks at the 2-to-1 ketogenic diet and the low glycemic index diet and looks at them for the treatment of chronic and episodic migraine. This is a small study. It was a single-center real-life retrospective studies, and there was a lot of limitations for us in taking this study and applying it to the general population. There was only 60 people. They all lived in one place. So not highly translatable information, but interesting because of what they found. They had 39 patients go on the low-glycemic diet, and then 29 patients went on the two-to-one ketogenic diet, all of this for three months, and they collected data. So they looked at headache diaries. They looked at fat mass bmi etc and they analyzed it to look and see what happened in terms of these people's migraine outcomes and what they found was that both diets were actually effective both were effective at reducing migraine symptoms and both were effective in reducing migraine related debility this is one small study though but looking head to head at low glycemic index which is a very s- safe diet doesn't have a lot of those problems attached to it in terms of kidney stones etc versus the ketogenic diet and finding that they were fairly equal in terms of outcomes. Another study done in 2022, this is a systematic review looking at the efficacy and tolerability of ketogenic diets and its variations in the prevention of migraine in adolescents and adults, they found that after looking at 10 studies in their systematic review, they found that the ketogenic diet did reduce the number and severity of migraine attacks in their patients, in these patients, but that the evidence was actually of fairly low quality and fairly low effectiveness. So the number of reduced migraine days was pretty ho-hum, and they couldn't say with a lot of confidence. This is a systematic review, which is considered a more valuable, reliable way of looking at data. And what they said was that they really couldn't say with great level of confidence that the ketogenic diet was a highly effective intervention for reducing the frequency of migraine. One final critical element looking at ketogenic diets and migraine prevention is from this study. This was in 2021, looking at ketogenic diet therapy to improve migraine frequency, severity, and duration. This was a 12-week randomized controlled crossover trial. And they were looking at two dietary interventions. One was just a healthy diet and the other was a ketogenic diet. They had people tracking their ketones in their urine to see that they'd actually achieved ketosis. So they were trying to ensure that they were actually comparing what they thought they were comparing between these people. And they ran into some problems. They had 26 people, which is a pretty small study to start with, but only 16 of them actually completed all the sessions and only 11 of them actually completed the checklists. And one of the interesting things about this is that all 11 of those participants that completed the checklists reported that they had a side effect of fatigue. That's a pretty important side effect. And I know that people who are really excited about ketogenic eating will say that their energy is so much better. But I would say that I see this also a lot in clinical practice, is that people who are doing ketogenic diets can often actually be fairly fatigued by the process. And it might be because they're really not getting enough carbohydrates to keep their their particular needs up for energy. In a way, you might be getting a reduction in frequency of migraine, although that's debatable how effective that actually is. It's not demonstrating superiority in small trials, very limited trials. Ketogenic diet does not seem to be superior to what I would argue a more healthy diet, which is the glycemic index diet, so eating a low glycemic index diet? And then, of course, are we also adding in more near-term side effects that are problematic beyond the long-term problem, which is increased risk of things like kidney stones and heart disease, but the short-term outcomes, which would be an increased risk of fatigue? So right now, there's some data to show that overall eating a healthy diet Likely makes a difference. There's a little bit of data around the DASH diet. And then this debate about the ketogenic diet. And the reason I'm focusing on this is people really get excited about it. And I hate to be a Debbie Downer, but I I actually think when you look at the abundance of research, it's probably better to be trying to do good old fashioned low glycemic index diet eating, keeping your blood sugars really stable, avoiding missing meals, taking good care to make sure that your blood sugar is stable is likely where you're gonna get some of the preventative benefits of, of diet. There's more to say about diet than that. I know there's going to be more because there hasn't been a ton of research yet on the use of things like Mediterranean diet or MIND diet on migraine, and I think we'll get that data and that will be an interesting thing to, to look at and hopefully report back to you folks in a few years' time. Now we're gonna move on to exercise. I think if it, anyone who listens to this podcast has probably figured out by now that exercise is really good for brains and it's really good for nervous systems. And, you know, if you're paying attention at all in this world, you know that it's good for your heart, it's good for your lungs, it's good for a lot of things, but it's really good for the brain. And people with migraine often associate at least intense exercise with a potential trigger for them. It's unfortunate that that can be the case because I think it can discourage them from exercising at all thinking that any exercise is going to trigger a migraine. While that's understandable, the evidence is that doing regular aerobic exercise, at least, is actually of benefit and could create a mild reduction in the frequency of your migraines, but also, and maybe more importantly, improve your quality of life and reduce the risk of depression in people with migraine. I'll start with a meta-analysis that was done in Spain. It was published in the Scandinavian Journal, Journal of Medical Science and Sports in 2020, and they did a systemic review and meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials looking for a difference in the intensity of pain and the frequency of migraine and the duration of migraine in people who perform aerobic exercise. These folks looked at a total, in the end, a total of 10 articles that were published between 1950 and 2019. So that's a pretty broad range, and there was a lot of variability in the studies. And so when they ended up with a final number of patients to look at for the meta-analysis, it was only 508 patients. The evidence, as I mentioned before, was somewhat low quality, but they did find a couple things interesting. First, they found that increased aerobic exercise seemed to be correlated with decrease in pain intensity. People were reporting with their migraine experiences. They found that people had a reduced frequency of migraine. And they also found that people reported that the duration of their migraine attacks were shorter. They also found in the meta-analysis that there was a statistically significant improvement in quality of life in the people who were exercising aerobically. And we don't want to minimize the importance of this. The comorbidities for migraine of depression are significant and very relevant. We know that people with migraine are much more likely to experience depression and suicidality exercise is a way to address that comorbidity and reduce the risk that that person's going to have that experience. So we want to pay attention to something like that. So in studies where, we, where we're looking for a reduction in one thing, let, let's say one parameter, which is the frequency of something, sometimes we can forget that there's more than that that might be of benefit. And in this case, exercise has so many additional benefits, but this particular one of mood improvement and improvement in quality of life is really notable for for folks with migraine because they often are people who are experiencing really significant reductions in their quality of life and problems with depression. Another study I looked at was one that was published in 2019. It is a systematic review of the literature and a meta-analysis looking at the effect of aerobic exercise on the number of migraine days duration and intensity, so the same Things that were looked at in that other study we just talked about. I would say that the main finding that they had there was that quality of evidence is not great. Same same issue as seen before. Although they didn't find any improvements in pain intensity or duration of attacks, of a migraine attacks, they did find a, a definite reduction in the frequency. It was about a half a day reduction in monthly frequency. So, I mention this because it gives you a sense of the effect size. That doesn't seem very big. But again, if you're adding in that is also making someone feel better in multiple other ways, still probably is a reasonable therapeutic to bring in. And if we're reducing, let's say you have two migraines a month and we get it down to one and a half, that means instead of four migraines over two months, you're having three. If that's a week that we're saving you every two months, that still is probably worth it. Plus, you're getting all the other benefits. They found in some of this research, they, they also found, and I think these are interesting factoids showing up, is that higher-intensity training might create a bit more benefit, meaning that people who are aerobically exercising at a slightly higher intensity may be actually experiencing more of the benefits from aerobic exercise. There is one study out there comparing topiramate, which is a pharmacological intervention that is used to prevent migraine. Comparing that against aerobic exercise and essentially aerobic exercise was not inferior, meaning that the use of topiramate or the use of exercise both had similar benefits to patients. The big difference in, those, in that study between the groups was that people on topiramate had a lot of side effects, whereas people with exercise had minimal. I think there's pretty clear evidence that there's a good rationale to adding in aerobic exercise as a way to amend the experience of migraine in your life. And I know that there's people out there thinking right now, but every time I exercise, I get a migraine. I can't do that. For those folks, it's probably good to consult with someone who could help do a gradual, very slow graded approach to increasing your load. You may be able to tolerate that. They may be able to help you with looking at heart rate and monitoring your heart rate when you exercise and just gradually increasing for time to build your tolerance up. There are ways to possibly get that into your plan and there are physiotherapists and kinesiologists out there that are happy to help with that and give you great support at the same time. Now we're going to talk about supplementation. So nutritional supplementation is something I don't talk about a lot on the podcast. I think it's a little fraught because. The research in nutritional supplementation is often small studies, high risk of bias. So supplementation is something I don't talk about very much yet, at least on the well-nurtured brain. And in part, that's because I find that there's a lot of challenges in reporting supplementation research. Sometimes the research is, is very small. The studies can be using a wide variety of doses, which makes it really hard to interpret what's the best approach to, to use supplementation. I also find that sometimes this is an area where there's a lot of conjecture, and one of the things I've found in my practice is that supplementation can be very helpful, but when we look at things that have great benefit to people with mental health and neurological conditions... There are some some star players that seem to show up over and over again and are probably very useful therapeutics, and there's some specific interventions that sometimes are really helpful in specific situations, but that people will be taking enormous amounts of supplementations and hope that something in the shotgun approach is actually helping. And I don't want to contribute to that. I don't want people to start piling on more and more supplements in order to try to Address whatever health problem they have, because I think we need to be strategic with supplements and really look at the studies and do what I would call therapeutic trials quite often to see whether or not this is actually working for you, if that is an appropriate way to approach the intervention. In the case of supplementation for people with migraine, that is appropriate. So, people with migraine can certainly be doing what I would call treatment trials to see, especially if they're tracking the frequency of their attacks or the frequency, duration, and intensity of, of their attacks. People with migraine can certainly be doing a study on themselves in a sense, ideally with guidance from a professional, to see if they are actually a candidate that responds to certain interventions. And in migraine, there are a few stars that I'm going to just briefly cover here. The first one that I think gets a lot of attention is magnesium. Magnesium is probably partially of great interest because it used to fit into a past theory of what was happening with migraine. So migraine, if we thought before, there was... In part because of the throbbing nature, it was thought that pain was coming from blood vessels in the brain that were, that were contracting and spasming. That's absolutely not what's going on. But magnesium is a therapeutic that does cause relaxation of the vasculature. And so it was thought to be an intervention that would be helpful. And in addition, the use of magnesium sulfate as an intravenous treatment to try to interrupt a migraine attack is used in hospitals. All of that amounted to magnesium is a great thing for migraines and we should just throw a lot of magnesium at folks who are experiencing it. In preparing for this, I thought it'd be wise to take a look and see what's been happening out there in the research world for migraines. And so I looked at a few bits of of research and data. I looked at this 2018 systematic review uh, published in the journal Headache. They did find that there was a significant reduction found in one trial where people were taking magnesium to reduce the number of attacks compared to placebo. This was a placebo controlled trial, and it showed that there was a significant reduction in the number of migraine attacks per month in people taking what ended up being a fairly high load of magnesium. It's about 600 milligrams. Was, this was a stati- statistically significant reduction. And they concluded that there was some evidence to support the use of, of magnesium. I would caution one thing to folks listening to this, which is that a dose of 600 milligrams of magnesium is not a tiny dose. And I think anyone out there who's considering this really should actually talk to a professional for a few reasons. One is that it could certainly create some side effects that are problematic, like diarrhea. But in addition, we would want to know whether or not this is a safe intervention for you yeah. A supplementation like magnesium may sound really benign, but actually can be very problematic for a subset of patients, people with kidney problems, people with cardiovascular or heart conditions. We need to be really cautious with magnesium. So while there's a lot of folks out there that are taking it and probably taking it ad lib and maybe using that with efficacy for their migraine attacks, please be advised, of course, that it's not safe for everyone. Another supplement, and this is a supplement that gets a lot of attention in the migraine world as well, is riboflavin, which is also known as B2. And there's been a bit of research looking at this as a a helpful supplement for preventing migraine. And compared to magnesium, it's safer. It's also very dramatic if you take it because it makes your pee mango-colored yellow, very, very yellow. Riboflavin has been used quite a bit for the prevention of migraines, and there was a systemic review published in 2017 looking at the use of riboflavin for the prevention of migraine. And this was a high dose, 400 milligrams. is what's typically used. That's a lot of riboflavin. In this study published in the Journal of Clinical Pharmacy and Therapeutics in 2017, they looked at a total of 11 clinical trials that revealed it mixed effects for riboflavin in the prophylaxis of migraine headache. So what I mean by that is that they, again, were finding mixed effects, but also uh, heterogeneity in the studies, meaning that the studies were quite variable in how they were approaching researching this problem. And so there wasn't a lot of consistency between the trials. But they had five clinical trials that showed consistent positive therapeutic effect in adults. And then they also looked at pediatric and adolescent patients, and they had four trials that showed some some benefits there as well. The risk with riboflavin intervention is fairly low, but people can be allergic to any B vitamins. So we need to always be careful and cautious about that. And what's interesting is that in my career, what I've noticed is that the use of magnesium, riboflavin, and the next supplement I'm going to talk about. Is a really common threesome to be prescribed by uh, pediatric neurologists and neurologists in general as a first attempt to try to reduce the frequency of someone's migraines. And it's because of these trials, and it's because of trials using them together as well, which I'm not going to talk about today. So what is that final element of the migraine cocktail? This is the one that has the most research and to support its use, and that's coenzyme Q10. Coenzyme Q10 is an enzyme that is critical in the production of ATP and the mitochondria of our cells, the powerhouses of our cells. One of the things that we can say about the brain is that the brain has a very high need for ATP. Your brain is a very small part of your body in terms of, of its volume and its mass, but it requires 30% of your energy, and that energy comes in the form of ATP, and it is Created from things like glucose and ketones, as mentioned earlier. And things that supplements that, like coenzyme Q10, that improve the production of ATP do have outsized benefits in the brain and other highly metabolic tissues, like the heart, for instance. So, coenzyme Q10 has been looked at quite a bit because it is known to have a a mode of action that makes sense, but also there seems to be some reasonable data to support now that it probably does help with reducing the frequency of migraines. There was a meta-analysis that was reported in 2020 in the journal um, Nutritional Neuroscience. This was a systematic review and meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials using coenzyme Q10 for the prevention of migraine. And they found four randomized controlled trials, which had about 221 people in total, looking at coenzyme Q10 for the reduction of frequency of migraine attacks. And they found that, on average, CoQ10 reduced migraine frequency by about 1.87 events per month, just under two events per month. So again, if you're doing migraine math out there, that could be even up to two weeks of reduced debility and time in managing a migraine. If you are preventing it, you don't have to manage it. So I always think CoQ10 is maybe the the one that has the most clinical efficacy, but we often see it being used alongside magnesium and riboflavin, the idea being it's a supplement cocktail versus the drug cocktails that are used to treat migraine, this being a supplement cocktail. I think the biggest problem with coenzyme Q10 is that it's actually fairly expensive for most people when you start looking at the cost to get to what is typically a treatment dose, which is about 300 milligrams. That's where the best outcomes come. And there's one other thing I want to say, and it's one of my biggest pet peeves about coenzyme Q10 and, and many other things out there in the world of supplements, is that when I suggest to someone to pick up coenzyme Q10, 300 milligrams, and take that daily, I really literally mean coenzyme Q10. But when they go in to get their supplement and they go to a supplement store, health food store, they will often be told that there's something else that is a better version of CoQ10. Maybe it's liposomal or it's slightly different form that has been found to be stronger in some way, shape or form, probably in an animal study. And people will get kind of upsold to these other things that it's not the actual thing that was studied. And We don't know. There's no way that we can say with confidence that once you take ordinary CoQ10 that was used in the studies and change it to liposomal or change it in some other way, that it actually is going to have the same therapeutic effect. We can't say that with confidence. And so we really should not be comparing this PQQ or some other form of CoQ10 with the ordinary everyday form that has been researched. So just a little problem that I find quite often when folks go out to get CoQ10 is that they actually end up buying something that's a bit different from what the studies were done on, and then we don't know. We don't know, often we don't even know what dose of that would be appropriate, and whether it's actually getting distributed to the tissues it needs to. It's just too much complexity being added into it, and usually it's more expensive. So buying the ordinary everyday CoQ10 that's usually more affordable is better. Now, one other thing that really impresses me in the world of natural therapeutics for migraine is the outcomes that are being found with acupuncture for prevention. So I just want to take you through a few studies on this because it's pretty exciting, interesting stuff. I did review about five studies, and I'm going to just touch on a few of them. But there's a lot of studies out there, meta-analysis and systemic reviews, that are looking at acupuncture as a reasonable intervention for reducing the frequency of migraine. In the journal Headache in 2020, they did publish a review looking at acupuncture versus standard pharmacological therapy for migraine. And they had seven clinical trials in this systemic review and meta-analysis for a total of 1,430 participants. So this is a fairly good number of people. And in several of the the studies that they were looking at where they were comparing the effectiveness of standard pharmacological treatment against acupuncture, it was found that acupuncture was often more effective than the standard pharmacological treatments for migraine prevention. That's similar to what I was saying early, earlier that exercise was considered non inferior, although in this case acupuncture may actually be superior to these standard pharmacological treatments for migraine prevention. I would caution that the limitation of all of this acupuncture research is that there was not a lot of standardization as to what points were being used, how many treatments there were, over what period of time were these people treated, and so there's a lot that wasn't that isn't known from this meta-analysis as far as, you know, what would be the best approach of care. And I would say that most traditional acupuncturists would hop in here and say, and that's not how we practice. So in the traditional form, at least of acupuncture, you would take an assessment of someone, look at the pattern of their particular problem, and then treat it according to what traditional Chinese medicine would indicate is the problem. So it is a highly individualized treatment, which makes it also kind of hard to study, as you, as you can imagine but they are finding that it's got this potential to be a prophylactic treatment. It's pretty promising. In 2023, there was a systematic review and meta-analysis looking at it again for the prophylactic treatment of migraine, and they found 40 randomized controlled trials and 4,405 participants. So that's a lot of people. That's a good number of participants for an acupuncture treatment. And essentially, what they found was that acupuncture, again, outperformed medications they found similar outcomes to that previous study I was mentioning, that again, it might perform better or appears to perform better than the prophylactic medication it was being compared against. And then I think a place that got me really excited a few years ago was a Cochrane Review that was in favor of using acupuncture as a preventative treatment for migraines. This is from 2016. And you can go on Cochrane Review website and actually look at the, the summary of this research. If you have migraine, I strongly recommend that you do this. And I'm actually just gonna read from the Cochrane Review on acupuncture and migraine that was published in 2016 because they, they write it in a way that's really clear and easy for you to understand. That was essentially looking to see if acupuncture, and they were specific, consisting of at least six, six treatment events, so six treatment sessions, looking to see if this could be a valuable option for people with migraine. And what they wanted to see was a reduction in the frequency of migraine days per month. And then they looked at a few different types of trials. So in four trials, this is coming right from them now, where acupuncture was added to usual care, 41 out of 100 people had the frequency of their headaches at least halved compared to 17 out of 100 people who were given usual care only. So 41 people out of 100 people in the acupuncture group had at least a halving of their frequency of migraine compared to 17 out of 100 people who were given usual care only. So essentially, it probably makes sense to add acupuncture to usual care to increase the outcomes of reducing frequency of migraine. In 15 trials, they compared acupuncture with what would be called sham acupuncture. So that's like an attempt to do placebo acupuncture. And they found that the frequency of headaches halved in about 50 out of 100 people receiving true acupuncture compared with 41 out of 100 people receiving sham acupuncture. So people who are watching attentively will say, say oh, 41 people who got the sham treatment actually out of 100 would actually benefit from a sham acupuncture treatment. And that the difference is only nine people. Yes, that's true. And Any treatment, whether it's acupuncture or a pill, has a placebo effect, and that's probably what we're seeing there, right? There was no difference in side effects between the real and and the sham acupuncture, and there was no difference in the number of people dropping out because of side effects. So that was pretty robust still, like that there'd be nine more people benefiting out of 100 in halving the number of migraine events they have in a month. And then finally, they had, in five trials, they compared it to a drug. So they were looking at drug comparators. And acupuncture versus a medication that was known to reduce the frequency of migraine attacks, compared head-to-head over three months, they found that the headache frequency was halved in about 57 out of 100 people receiving acupuncture, compared to 46 out of 100 who were getting the drug. Six months out, the results get a bit closer together. So at six months, the frequency of migraine headache was about half in 59 out of 100 people who had received the acupuncture treatment versus 54 in the medication treatment. But one of the big differences is the reported side effects. So people receiving the medication were much more likely to have challenges with the medication side effects and more likely to drop out of the trial because of side effects versus acupuncture. This is good pretty good reporting. It it's done by the Cochrane group and they are known for the rigorous nature of their reviews and the high standards that they place on people that do their reviews for them. And so they come out with a suggestion that acupuncture be used as a preventative treatment for migraine because of these findings. And that's really exciting. So we know that there is lots that we can't explain in this world, and we can't really explain yet why acupuncture would make this big of a difference for people with migraine. But the evidence is actually pretty clear. We are likely to benefit if we have migraine from a treatment course of acupuncture. And thank you, Cochrane, for telling us it's six sessions. <laughs> but again, we don't know the specifics of that treatment. And, and I would say you're going to have to, at this point, just go and see a really reputable acupuncturist, and they will provide you with the treatment as indicated based on their years of training. I think that's, that's an exciting piece of information for folks with migraine. I hope you're as excited about it as I am. I often refer now to acupuncture after all of these studies. So in summary, overall, we have mild quality or mild level of uh, evidence to support at least a healthy diet and a healthy low-glycemic diet for people with chronic migraine for reducing their migraine frequency. We have moderate evidence to support 150 minutes of moderate to vigorous aerobic activity for people who are experiencing chronic migraine. And that there's a side benefit in that that helps treat other comorbidities like reduce quality of life, it improves quality of life, and also improves symptoms related to depression. We have that variety of supplements with moderate to strong evidence to support their use. And I mentioned that this is now something that we see often in practice being suggested because of the low risk attached to supplementation being suggested by neurologists. Again, I suggest that anyone listening to this first get a, a check-in with a trusted healthcare advisor before they jump into that. And then finally, this really exciting information about acupuncture and migraine. I hope this provided you with some hope. We're not talking, of course, about how to manage that pain in that moment when you're in an awful migraineous headache. But what we're talking about is preventing the frequency that you have to go through that. And that's where we can shine. And this is where lifestyle medicine and alternative medicine probably really shines in general, is that we're usually much better on the prevention of things and the addressing of chronic health concerns versus treating acute things. And so with that, I want to thank you again for tuning in again to The Well-Nurtured Brain. I'm really, really happy to have completed this episode. It's actually been quite a bit of work for me, and I'm super excited to finally be getting it out there. If you have any questions or you want to suggest anything to us in terms of a topic, please reach out to us at the well brain at gmail.com. That's the well nurtured brain at gmail.com. We have another episode coming up in two weeks' time. So until then, please be kind to your mind. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Well-Nurtured Brain. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe and share this podcast. Spread the word about brain health to your friends and family. They'll thank you. The content of this podcast is not intended as a substitute for medical advice, nor should it be considered as such. If something discussed today seems applicable to you, please seek the assistance of an appropriately licensed healthcare professional. Thanks again for listening.